Please remember, the information in our podcast could be a trigger for some people. And if you or someone you know has been affected by sexual abuse, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre 24-hour helpline is 1-800-77-8888. Hello, I'm Joyce. I'm June. And I'm Paula. We're the Cavanagh Sisters, and we'd like to welcome you to our series of Count Me In Podcasts, where we continue to shine a light on childhood sexual abuse and its impacts. In this week's podcast, we'll be talking to Rachel Moran, author, activist and campaigner. Rachel grew up on the north side of the city. She had a difficult childhood. She entered residential care at age 14. At age 15, she got involved in prostitution up to the age of 22, when she courageously managed to break free and put that life behind her. At age 24, she gained a degree in journalism from Dublin City University and won the hybrid award for excellence in journalism. She's a fierce activist and campaigner and has appeared on The Late Late Show. She's taken part in many newspaper, radio and television interviews, both home and abroad. Her book, Paid For, My Journey Through Prostitution, was in the top 10 Irish best-selling books for over 12 weeks. To prepare for this interview, I, I looked at other interviews that you've done and you're just amazing now, Rachel. You really are. You're so articulate and you just come across as if each word had been chosen perfectly for to answer any of the questions you've ever been asked on this subject. The position we come from is the, the damage that childhood abuse causes. And even after you've dealt with the what you what you realize as your experience of abuse, the psychological damage lasts a lifetime, and especially if you don't address it. So with that in mind, we'd like to pay a little bit more attention to your childhood. Uh, I heard mentioned that both parents had mental health issues. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think um, in a way it was very much like being raised inside a, a toxic kind of bubble, you could describe it as, because there was a kind of an enforced isolation in that my my mother was very fearful about the world and she wanted to protect her children from it. Right. So as little as possible as she could get away with letting us outside the front door, That's that was her modus operandi. And it wasn't as strict or as severe with me as it would have been with my other siblings because I was the eldest girl and that confers a kind of set of responsibilities on you that involves leaving the house, you know? Yeah. So I would have had a little bit more leeway that way than the other kids. But it certainly had an effect because with the level of poverty that there was in the family and the impacts from the unaddressed mental health. And there was addiction also, but it didn't play, I wouldn't say, as big a role as the other issues. You kind of were in this environment where you had several different forms of psychological pressure. And then you were forcibly removed from the world. And then when you would leave the house, people outside of your own immediate environment you know the other kids in school the kids in the neighborhood you'd be marked out as different because you were different and there was a lot 
then of othering, I suppose, is the word that I would have come across in my adulthood to describe what was really going on. We were reminded constantly that we were different and which this we already knew. So it wasn't like when you did leave the house, you got some respite. You didn't. You just got reminded of of what you were already aware of. So it didn't matter whether you were in the house or outside of it. The only thing that changed was the particular form of emotional and, and psychological pressure. And what about your father? Well, my dad was bipolar. He had been diagnosed when he was still in his teens and he was treated as an inpatient in in the local mental hospital. And, you know, the thing to remember about that is we're talking about 40s, 50s, 60s, Ireland. And look, you couldn't even say the, the term mental illness back in those days. My dad's side of the family were originally from the Liberties and they moved up to Cabra West when Cabra West was a brand new housing estate. So those are the kind of times we're talking about. How many siblings do you have? Just five kids in our family. My mother had a boy, uh, three girls and another boy, and I'm the eldest of the girls. Right. And you're saying that your mother was so fearful. She was afraid of everything, afraid of the world. And are you saying that when you went outside of the house, there was a sense of being different that you stood out or you were pointed out as being different in school why was that i know exactly why it was it was because we were so dirty physically dirty we were neglected and that was very physical very visual just what you'd expect in those circumstances unwashed clothes very old clothes you know a uniform you'd wore three and four years running you know that kind of thing obviously in that environment working class Dublin in throughout the 70s and 80s. It was a time when nobody had much of anything. I'm not singling us out as the only poor family in Dublin. I would say definitely we were easily in the lowest 1%, you know, when it came to physical lacks. From malnutrition? No, actually, no, I wouldn't say that because my mother, for all her, her failings as a mother, which were inevitable to her mental illness. I mean, these weren't character flaws, but she always, always made a meal every evening. Now, about nine, ten months out a year, that meal would be a big bowl of porridge, but you'd still have a full belly. So I wouldn't say we were malnourished, no. Right. And so do you feel that the fear your mother experienced impacted on your life? Oh, well, I know it did, but I don't believe it kind of impacted on my psyche in the sense that I always knew that her attitudes were irrational. So they wouldn't have impacted on me to the extent that I would have found myself agreeing with them. And I know that that is, that is the case for some children. So I was lucky maybe there, you know? Yeah. What was your relationship like with her? I think in a sad kind of way, it's true to say I didn't really have one. Because although we were very close in one sense... You are your mother's foot soldier when you're you're the eldest girl in those kind of circumstances, or in most circumstances, I would say. But culturally, in Ireland, you're very close to your mother as the eldest girl. But I think alongside of that, we didn't have any real substance to the relationship because I always knew I was dealing with someone I couldn't trust. And was she affectionate or distant? Do you know, I wouldn't really describe her in either of those ways. She was too unwell within herself to be 
either one of those things really. I mean, if she was distant, it was because she was sick. Like without explaining away why she would have done what she'd done. You as a child, where did you get your affection from? Well, you didn't get a whole lot of that. You knew being raised by this woman that whatever way she was reacting to you, wherever it was on the scale, it wasn't something that you could take with sincerity. She wasn't sincerely distant or sincerely affectionate. She was just an unwell woman. Everything that you experienced within that relationship was viewed through that prism. And how did you get on with your siblings? We got on a lot better in childhood than we did in adulthood. There was this inevitable kind of growing apart that happened. All of the girls in our family left home at or around the age of puberty, which I don't believe is a coincidence. And that caused myself and my next youngest sister to be very close, and we still are close to this day. Our younger sister, our relationship went the opposite way. So what you ended up with was a family of adults who didn't know really how to conduct a harmonious family relationship. But individually, I would say for the most part, we probably did better than anybody observing our family might have expected. So how did you end up in residential care at age 14? What brought that about? My father died in November of 89, and that had the effect of escalating my mother's mental illness. A major defining feature of her illness was, was scapegoating. I think at the psychological level, it was a necessity for her. I inherited that role immediately after my father died. I left home the following spring. There was only a few months between my father's suicide and my leaving home. And how did you feel about the, the suicide? That's, that's tough. I think in a certain respect, we were pretty much beyond the point of feeling. At that stage, we were very desensitised emotionally. It wasn't that it didn't upset us. There was a, a big gulf or a barrier between ourselves and our own feelings, if you know what I mean. And Rachel, have you ever gotten any uh, counselling? I don't want to be you know, promoting therapy every time I open my mouth, but that sounds like an awful lot for, of trauma Yeah, to deal with at a very young age. And I'm just wondering, have, have you been through counselling or therapy around you know, your childhood issues just? I suppose the thing is now, the space of a conversation, of course, when you, you put all that out there on the table, it does sound hugely traumatising, and it is. But the thing is, by the time you've got to 13, 14, and you've had all that to deal with since toddlerhood, your whole environment is traumatising. So there's nothing new in this for you. I spoke to a woman in Boston recently. She was a trauma therapist. And we were just conversationally talking about, you know, what draws women into prostitution. And she works with prostituted women herself. So she was familiar with all these issues. And she asked me at what point I'd had trauma therapy. And I'll never forget the look on her face. She looked, frankly, appalled when I didn't even know what trauma therapy was. But anyway, the conversation went on and she felt that it was absolutely crucial that I get myself into trauma therapy. I mean, I know it, it works very well for a lot of people and I found a sense of respite, you know, relief in some of the conversations I had with my therapist. But I, need, I didn't see either one of them for you know, very, very long, extended periods of time. I just kind of felt it was like the the time when I went to 
to, I went to NA when I was 22. What I was really feeling was that I just had to be able to see a room full of people. And then I would know that, okay, it could be done. But I suppose like just our objectively observing, it looks a little like, and I could be completely wrong, the trauma that brought you into prostitution. Yeah. Started in your childhood, but the prostitution was so traumatic and it's been where you've been fighting for justice for, for so long. The pain goes back further than that. Would that resonate with you at all? That that would have never happened to you if you hadn't have come from the childhood you you had. Well, I've been saying that for years, that prostitution is always preceded by something else. And that should be very revealing to us that that something else is always something negative. I had a conversation in New York a few years ago with a load of women and they were all head of organizations. All of us had prostitution histories. The point I made that was that often the idea was put forward that we were broken in prostitution, but that in my experience of life, um, we took our brokenness into prostitution. And every one of them women nodded their heads and they all agreed with that. So, yeah, very much in line with what you're suggesting. The The damage goes back much further. And I would say the damage itself is responsible for prostitution histories in, in most women's lives. That's something that people don't like to talk about because, you know, there's all sorts of layers of, oh, victimhood and, and I'm... I'm not a victim and all these kind of emotional reactions, I think, to talking about that as a reality. But to me, there's a whole world of difference between being a victim and having been victimized. The ways that you are harmed and to make the distinction between the behavior that you were on the receiving end of and the idea that that behavior then defines somehow the core of who you are. I know our situations are different and, you know, but we also have found that when people are traumatized or abused or neglected in childhood, ultimately they leave the same scars and you're left feeling with very little or poor self-worth, plenty of self-hatred. It's just a cocktail of very negative emotions that put you in prime position for further abuse because your self-belief is so low, it's a knock-on effect throughout your life and it follows you throughout your life if you don't address it. But when you end up in something like prostitution, that is so traumatic, it can actually overshadow the damage that came, that was... That, that got you there in the first place. It. Exactly. Yeah. Well, for me, you know, I was a very young child. I don't know exactly how old I was. I only know that we moved out of that flat when I was about four and a half. And I remember standing in the middle of the sitting room and having a conversation with my mother and asking her when she was going to get better. And she told me that she wasn't sick. And it was a really genuine, innocent response. She was being thoroughly honest with me, you know? Yeah. And that was the moment when I knew I was dealing with somebody who was sick and didn't know it. And from that moment forward, I knew, you see, that really destabilizes any sense of security. If both parents have mental health issues, you absolutely would have felt alone. Yeah. And like you would, it would have toughened you up quickly because you'd have known, you know, it's get tough or die. That really is. It's the foundational relationship of your life. 
And when that's disrupted to the point where you can't have any kind of trust in it at a very, very early age, well, it sets you up for all sorts of things and, and none of them are positive. Like what if I had floated on throughout childhood and into adolescence unaware that I was dealing with an unwell person? I think the consequences for me would have been much worse. But at the same time, there has to be recognition of the the absolute devastation for a child to realise I'm on my own here. That's hard. That's tough. Yeah, it is. Can you briefly describe for us how you got into prostitution? I'd left home, like I said, in the, the spring of 1990. And I went first to a, a care home for young girls who'd come out of dysfunctional environments. We were all in, in our teens, roughly around the same age. 15, 16. I was 14, so I was the baby. The first few weeks, I was a bit of a novelty for the girls. They used to love putting makeup on me and high heels and bringing me down to the pub. And this was a whole other world for me. I remember the first day I looked in the mirror after the first day one of the girls put makeup on me and I said, oh my God, I don't even look like me. <laughs> you know, like that's how innocent I was. Couldn't it be in any more overtly vulnerable if I'd tried. I believe to this day that the way that the hostel managed or handled my case was disgraceful. They didn't appear, look back in it now, I think they were shockingly naive, you know, I mean, they, they really didn't have, seem to have any, any understanding of how to deal with this functional girls, but here they had 10, 12 of them to deal with all at the same time. What you had there was a kind of a hothouse environment. There was a lot of violence in that hospital. I went in there in the spring of 1990 not having any idea how to physically defend myself. It wasn't something that had ever been a regular feature of my life. And I, within a few months, was beating the shit out of the same girls who'd been beating the shit out of me. But you had to. I mean, you just had to. Yeah. And you had to do that quickly. And I'll never forget the day I flung a young one down the stairs. She was 16 and she'd been picking on me since I first went in there. And I just badly just flung her down the stairs, just sick of getting beaten up, you know. And I was standing at the top of the stairs looking at her crumpled in a ball on the landing, about like 18, 20 steps down. And I was looking at her and I was thinking, Jesus, I just did that. It was a shocking environment to be in. I felt like I was stepping out into a world that I knew very, very little about because my mother had gone out of her way to such an extent to shield me from it. I was very, very unsettled at the start. I remember that having this constant feeling of nervous tension and anxiety, you know, in my head. I was very withdrawn, shy, quiet, even a bit socially awkward. I was the kind of girl who loved reading. I loved to read. I loved the escapism involved in reading. Had I been with a foster family who were dedicated and knowledgeable from that time up to my late teens, I think um, things could have been very different. But it was very much influenced by the environment. So I was flung out of that hostel anyway after a few months. And that's when the whole cycle of street homelessness, state-funded B&Bs, stints in uh, battered wives shelters and so on and so forth um, began and that went on for about a year before I got involved in prostitution. How did you get involved or who got you involved? 
I had been several weeks out under the stars when I met a young man from England. And we were together uh, five days when he brought me down, down Borb Street. People would be amazed some of the stuff that you laugh about. I love sitting around with the girls in Space International and talking about some of the experiences we've had and putting a kind of a... Because the girls will always put a humorous spin on it, no matter what it is. One of the girls was telling me her fellow was a few months <laughs> before he brought her down. And I, we were saying, Jesus, he really rested on his laurels. Mine had me down in over a week. I, I wouldn't have thought to label him as a pimp, although that's exactly what he was. How long did it take you to recognise that? Well, I got pissed off handing most of my money over to him fairly quickly. The thing about that time in my life is that it was very much like a kaleidoscope. Like if I was to sit down with a pen and paper and try to trace out everything that happened between the spring of 1990 and a couple of years deep, let's say, inevitably I'd be bouncing all around the place and I'd forget things and I'd mix things up because there was so much that happened. And oftentimes my circumstances shifted from day to day. When I was homeless, I slept on Jesus on buses and in squats and some of them were squats that were already occupied by other squatters and some of them were vacant buildings where myself and my friend broke the wind and turned them into a squat you know and you'd be moved on very very quickly and so it was a very very tumultuous time so it's very difficult when you're having conversations like this one where you're trying to put things into some sort of a linear perspective. That's as a result of trauma and prostitution is just an onslaught of trauma. Oh, it is. It's wall-to-wall trauma. And it's, you know, you're being traumatized by a different amount of strangers every day in, in different but similar ways every day. And it's absolutely horrible. People don't really want to know if there's a backstory to why somebody ends up in prostitution. But I think in order for society to be able to live with what's happening to women, in lots of ways, prostitutes are not seen as human. They're dehumanized really quickly and really sharply by everybody, and in particular by the men who use prostitutes. Because it's the only way people could live with or do what they do with a clear conscience. Well, that's true. And I think, though, that women in prostitution are also dehumanised by many of the people who claim to support them. Although the ways that they're dehumanised in those circumstances are sneakier. I would say, more underhand. Right. Um, Like, for example, there was a a female politician in Canada very recently, and she was doing the whole, you know, banging the sex work drum and talking about sex workers' rights, erupted in fury when one of her, her colleagues in the parliament asked her whether this was a job that she would accept for herself. I find those kind of attitudes particularly despicable what I see is a willingness to condone abuse for other women that you wouldn't in a million years condone for yourself or anybody that you love. And that to me is dehumanization, but it's a weird kind of two-faced, um, underhanded way. Yeah, I think it's lack of education. I don't think they understand. They're just paying lip service to the, to the topic. And until they're challenged on it, like that, for example, that guy asking her that question, that just highlighted that she actually wasn't sincere in what she was saying. She didn't even really consider She didn't know it. enough. 
it's trying to get them to take the blindfolds off long enough to realize that there's people underneath every one of those statistics. And there's an individual behind every one of those women who are standing on the road or in the brothels. As true as it is that they don't know, it's also true that they don't want to know. Yeah. Um, and, and I say that because of the amount of years now that I've spent trying to, trying to get people to listen and meeting stone walls in response and listening to sex workers walk mantra from women who would no more go into a brothel than the man on the moon. And I'll tell you what makes me resentful, and I'm not in one bit, way, shape, or form shy about saying it makes me resentful. It makes me very resentful. It makes me absolutely stew with resentment is the amount of women that you will find in the political arena or in elevated positions in society, social commentators, uh, journalists in, in academia, etc., who uh, will bang that sex work drum and refuse to listen to those of us who are offering a counter-narrative to the prevailing public view. It makes me very angry because these are women who never had to make our so-called choices. Um, they're women who were safely tucked up at home in their beds at 14, 15, 16, 17 years of age. They have a duty and an obligation, I think, if they're even going to mention prostitution, to listen to the voices of those of us who speak for the majority. Because you can believe me, the majority are certainly not represented by the handful of very vocal third level educated white western women who are controlling the narrative you do an awful lot now um campaigning and advocating you know against the dangers and the negatives of prostitution have you made peace with your own past do you look back now with shame or regret or do you feel that you completely understand how and why your life turned out the way it did and you're you've made peace with it what happened happened I think I've made the best of it I think you know the thing that I wouldn't have been able to live with would have been slinking off keeping me mouth shut in order to protect myself from public scrutiny and allowing the shit show to just roll on unchallenged that's the thing I wouldn't have been able to live with and I don't have to worry about that no absolutely and you are doing a great service to so many people by having the courage to speak out, everybody that speaks out has a huge impact on others. And you'll never know the people that you've helped by speaking out. I want to ask your views on decriminalization of prostitution and a description of the Nordic model. The Nordic model, first of all, is a three-pronged strategy and it involves decriminalizing prostituted people, criminalizing those who exploit them either sexually or financially. So either the punters or the pimps, traffickers, etc., brothel keepers. And it also makes provisions for exit services. The criticisms that I would have in this regard are not directed towards the Nordic model itself, they're directed towards its implementation. So what I see persistently, too many governments are not willing to put their money where their mouth is. They'll introduce the Nordic model, but they'll fall way, way short of the financial commitment that they need to make in order to offer a full range of exit services so that women can fruitfully move on with their lives. Because this is not cheap, especially in a country like Germany, for example, where they've had legalization now in a very solid way for a couple of decades. How easy the Nordic model is to implement in 
nation depends on where that nation is at. Like Germany is going to have to do a massive U-turn. Back in 2002, they implemented full legalization and they brought in a whole new raft of regulatory measures. What they have done is created a monster in their own nation. So prostitution over there operates now, you could say, like a machine. Dismantling that system and replacing it with the Nordic model is going to be billions. That's going to be a huge effort and it will take political will and a lot more besides. We didn't have to do that U-turn because we hadn't legalized here. A lot of people think it's safer, fairer and a better idea to simply decriminalize prostitution. But they say that without an understanding of what that really means, what it means legally in terms of the framework that women are operating within and pimps and punters also will be operating within. I mean, I had a conversation with a young woman. She was an Amnesty International activist and she told me that Amnesty had voted to decriminalize prostitution full stop. And her understanding of that was it was to decriminalize the women within prostitution. It was a very bizarre conversation because that's not their policy proposal at all. Amnesty International's policy proposal is to decriminalize every pimp, every punter in the land, every brothel keeper, all the tour party exploiters. So when you hear a person saying decriminalization of prostitution, they're talking about the entire mechanism and that we are firmly opposed to. But I really think it's very important that you get that message out there because I think there's a lot of well-meaning people out there wondering what you would have a problem with if they're talking about decriminalizing prostitution. They think that they're making it better for a prostitute. They don't understand. It seems to me that there's just a lack of understanding involved. There's an enormous lack of understanding, and you're absolutely right there in that a lot of people are coming at this from a well-intentioned perspective, and they're doing a hell of a lot of damage along the way, but they are well-intentioned. I think that's the case for the majority of people. Their stance and their innocent ignorance is very convenient for those who know exactly what full decriminalization means. They want the full decriminalization because they're set to profit enormously from. Oh yeah, I know there are certain people that are driving it that absolutely know what it means, but there are certain people that are coming on board or brought on board that are ignorant of the facts around it. And so you Mm. need lots of people like you raising the profile so that people understand exactly what it is they're voting for. I mean, there's a couple of political parties here in this country, for example, the Green Party and People Before Profit, who are on board with this decrim for pimps policy. And when People Before Profit made their decision about 12 or 18 months back, all you could do was roll your eyes and laugh. I mean, how they can support the full decriminalization of every pimp on the island while retaining the name People Before Profit, it actually is common. I know. Rachel, do you have any figures on how many prostitutes might be in Ireland at present? We know it hovers in around the 800 to 1,000 mark. This is going off of the profiles that are advertised online every day, and that figure rises and falls in response to certain factors. Of them, how many would you say are trafficked? What we know is that in the region of 96% of the women now are migrant women, the majority being from the former Soviet bloc countries in Eastern Europe. Here and the amount of twisting that goes on in the Irish media is just mind-boggling. 
So we'll hear that the majority of women who are arrested are migrants and that this, the brothel keeping laws that were established in this country back in the 1930s, although to listen to certain people, you, you would believe that they were only implemented in 2017. They're in the wrong century, never mind the wrong decade. But to listen to them, you would think that in some way, a strange occurrence that it was fallen predominantly on migrant women. Well, of course it is when 96% of the women are migrant to begin with. As for being trafficked, trafficked is not a word that I ever use in relation to myself. And it's not a word that I use regularly in any case, because most people have a concept of what it is to be sex trafficked that involves being kidnapped, chained to a radiator style, the stuff of movies. I have actually met a young woman who had exactly that experience. She was kidnapped off the streets of London. They took her passport and frog marched her to the airport and flew her to Galway before she was prostituted north and south for years. Horribly, terribly brutalised. But stories like hers are relatively rare. The vast majority of women in prostitution are suffering various layers of coercion, um, very little to do with being chained to radiators. There's a lot of women who exist in a grey area, like they will be told to come in here to be carers or childminders or work in restaurants, etc. But there's a lot of women work where they'll be told that they're coming here to be in prostitution. But they're given a very, very different view of what prostitution is going to look like. They'll be told they'll be seeing a couple of men a few nights a week and they'll be able to do their English language classes and they'll be able to build a life and they'll be able to work towards a place where they'll be beyond prostitution and into a much better future. And those women, my heart really goes out to them because they're seen to have no recourse to any sort of, of compassion because they knew what they were getting into. That's the mantra. That's the idea. Well, they would no idea what they were getting into because they didn't know that they were going to be seven nights a week in a flat, intimidated, passports taken away, being used by as many men as the pimps can possibly get through the door. And they'll never see the inside of a English language class. What you're talking about with an awful lot of women who end up in this predicament, they're groomed the same way a child is groomed. It's done so well to them because they don't understand the grooming process. Half of them actually take on the thing of thinking they actually made a choice themselves. Look, if we were having this conversation back in the 90s, particularly in the first half of the 90s, you would have been speaking to a woman with a very different attitude. That's if I was prepared to speak to you at all, which would be unlikely. I would have been very belligerent, very hostile, very antagonistic, likely aggressive. I would have been telling you to fuck off and mind your own business and that I had a right to butter me bread any way I could. And I would have had a very self-involved, and this is something I can see now at the distance of decades, I would have had a very, very self-involved way of perceiving the entire situation. And who could blame me? You know, I mean, I would have been in the thick of it with no recourse to any other way of earning a living. So I would have felt fully justified in holding the ground. So I see a lot of that coming from women who are in the life right now. I don't castigate them for that. I understand where they're coming from. But I also understand that doggedly defending the full decriminalization of pimps is an incredibly selfish point of view to come from because this is not just about you it's about society more broadly and you just don't have that right to make that kind of decision for the society itself and everybody else living in it 
Am I right in saying that in Ireland at present, it's legal, prostitution is legal, is it? There's nothing illegal about it. If I go out and stand on a street corner right now, I can't be charged for that. But the man picking me up can. But that's only in the last Um, three years, isn't it, that the punter is the, the illegal one now? And in the last three years, only one punter has been arrested. Is that true? No, actually, there have been three. Those figures in itself are astonishing to think that in the last three years, paying for prostitutes is illegal. And yet there's only been three arrests in three years. And yet there's 18 women after being arrested for running a brothel. Is that, are those, have I got those figures right? You've that figure right, but what has been put out in the media is that there's been a jump in the number of women arrested. Actually, there's been a significant decrease. Coming back to your point about the men, we're dealing with what we've always been dealing with under patriarchy. Women being castigated and considered the the 'er ne'er-do-wells of society in all matters pertaining to sexual misconduct. And that's really what we're up against here. We're also up against a police force who support this law and want to implement it, but haven't been funded to do so. So that's an important part of what we're pressing for. Now that we have the law, we want to see it implemented properly. Also, Rachel, I was looking at some information on you online and it was saying it took 11 years for you to write your book. Now, that makes perfect sense to us because our first book took us 20 years. (laughs) You know, I read your book. If I knew it took 20 years, I'd forgotten about it. It took 10 years. But you know, I'm relieved to hear that. Yeah, it's because there are times we had to walk away. It was quite painful to write about. We would often put it aside for months or even sometimes years at a time. And I was just curious, did you have the same experience? Was it so, did it take that long because it was so difficult to write? I think there's two answers to that. And they're probably both equally true because definitely I remember many a night when it just felt too much to struggle on with. It was too painful. Yeah. But also, I'm a terrible procrastinator, so I have myself to thank for that as well. To be honest, we all procrastinate when it's stuff that's good for us. Spent 10 years writing it and another year editing it. And when I was left the manuscript in the year before I started editing, well, that was just bleeding frightening. It was 220,000 words. Yeah. So I had to cut it down several times before I got it down to 110. And that's the shape it was in then when it was published. It was half the size of the original manuscript. Like in our case, we found it very therapeutic to write it. A lot of the information we'd learned in therapy even didn't make much sense to us at all. We didn't really feel much benefit to it until we start writing. We found we got more answers out of writing than anything else we ever did in our life. Did you find that as well? That when you wrote your book, it helped you to make sense of your life? Did you find also, though, that it threw you up as many questions as answers? Oh, Jesus. Yeah, that's why it took so long. We we were thrown back into the darkest places time and time again. It's very difficult to cope and run a normal life while going through that. Like you're saying you procrastinated. I don't think it's procrastination. I think there's a bit of healing going on. Like we couldn't, literally couldn't face it at times. Yeah, I think that my book evolved as much as it was written, if you know what I mean. There were times when I'd be pulled back towards the text, I'd be floating around on the internet and I'd come across a quote and it would really seem to tally with a point that 
I had been trying to make, I'd be kind of drawn back to it by things that I never would have planned on or seen coming. And so it was kind of like that. And I sped up a little bit in the last couple of years, definitely. I got annoyed with myself six or seven years in that I was taking so long. You were asking me earlier on about whether I'd ever been to counselling. It was in um, 2008 that I first went to counselling and I'd been six years working on my book at that stage. And I forced myself into that situation where I was writing every night of the week. And after about three weeks, I felt really, really depleted emotionally, very distressed. And I decided it was time to go to counselling. But that was 2008. That was 10 years after I got out of prostitution. And what I realised looking back now is that I had spent those 10 years, first of all, getting off the narcotics um then you know my son started school that same year and then I started school two years later when when he was six I'd spent that 10 years securing you know housing education doing taking care of all the practicalities and it wasn't until 10 years deep that it finally hit me that I really needed to start taking care of myself really don't know the answer to whether or not the actual writing of the book was therapeutic I'm not sure but I think that it it did influence me in making some important decisions like going to counselling, definitely. Well, I've read the book and I have to say it, it's brilliant. The story you had to tell was just incredible. Uh, thanks very much. You're very kind. Rachel, can you tell us a bit about the We Don't Buy It campaign that was just recently launched? The We Don't Buy It campaign is a collaboration between four groups. They're Space International, the Men's Development Network, Ruhama and the Cork Sexual Violence Unit. So the four of us got together and decided that we'd like to launch a campaign to highlight the legislation that we achieved three years ago and to call on the government to support the guards in implementing it more robustly. You also said that you're an executive director of Space International. Can you tell us a bit more about that? I never heard of that organisation. Space International, um, Space stands for Survivors of Prostitution Abuse Calling for Enlightenment. And we're working now across about a dozen countries regularly uh, with sex trade survivors, all of whom have been years out of prostitution and are activists in their own right. Many of the women involved in our organization had frontline support services for women currently in prostitution. We have a, a huge wealth of experience both on the board of management and amongst the representatives and we cover four continents now. So we have a very rounded view of how prostitution is shaken down internationally, uh, the different legislative models and what exactly is happening on the ground in the different regions of the world. Well, Rachel, what's for you for the future now? <laughs> that question's really put me on the spot. Working on a new uh, writing project at the moment and I'm going to be really cagey and guarded about what that involves because it's still a work in progress and it's a, a piece of feminist comedy fiction and um, it has me laughing a lot which I think is a good sign oh Jesus that's great because I've met you <laughs> <laughs> and you need to laugh <laughs> over the years I remember talking to people about prostitution if it ever came up in conversation and what I felt men believe about prostitution is that you're never going to get rid of it. It's, it's around since the Bible. This is what some guys have said to me. Yeah, I really feel there's a complete inability for people to see it in the same light 
they would see sexual abuse. And to me, it is exactly the same. Just because money exchanged doesn't mean that that gives them the right then. They feel now they've now got a pass because money has exchanged hands. And I don't know how to help people understand how wrong that is. We're struggling to help people understand the impacts of sexual abuse. And it seems to me that you're in a similar position we're trying to, ha it's all about education and reform and the education system could contribute hugely to this because you need, you need to focus on the next generations coming up because there is a lot of danger coming on board with, with the internet and with where the next generation are getting their sex education. It appears that we're going to have a whole new set of problems coming up and we really do need to take action. I don't think we can afford to rest on our laurels. Although this problem might have existed for ever, it doesn't mean that there's no urgency involved in addressing it. Yeah. Well, you've covered several really important talking points actually there in the space of that one statement. What I personally think is that we have the same set of problems coming up that we've always had, but the difference is now that they're on bleeding steroids, that they're also legitimate. Because social media now, you can have an interaction as a young person on social media now instantaneously that would have taken weeks or months maybe to happen back in the 80s for example everything is happening much much more quickly everything has been depersonalized out of all shape and form it's also alongside of that been normalized and legitimized so it's a whole cocktail of problems that we have and i personally think that sexual mutuality is something that ought to be taught as a core aspect of the sex ed curriculum. I'm blue in the face listening to women talking about sexual consent. I think that there's an element of ignorance involved in the phrase itself because having sex with somebody, it's supposed to be a two-way street emotionally, psychically, sexually, every other way. It's supposed to be an act of mutuality. It's not an act of consent. I don't get into bed with me fella and say, is it okay if I kiss you? Do you mind if I put my hand here? Do you mind if I put my hand there? That's not what's going on with, with mutual sex. I think that the concept of consent in sex is itself problematic. I think it's brought us down side roads because it has a contractual connotation as a term. We've got off on the wrong foot with that, with that kind of language. If we think about sex and sexuality in terms of mutuality, we wouldn't be condoning contractual um, sexual exchange, whether it involves finances as it does in prostitution, or whether it's a woman who she's just opening her legs under duress because she wants them fixed a washing machine or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think as soon as you move away from mutuality, um, you've moved away from the core of what sex actually is. And I think all of our problems and misunderstandings start there. Well, I think that's a very good point, Rachel. And I'd have to say, until you've said it there, I had a sense from the time that consent was brought in. There was a, a problematic, uh, you know, thought process ran along with it. I didn't get a good feeling from it. I'm trying to understand how is that actually going to work in real life. And then I just parked it somewhere and dismissed it, which I'd imagine a lot of people did with something they don't understand or can't wrap their head around. So until you have voiced it like that now, I, I don't think I'd have given it a thought, but it's a very good way of putting it. How do we rehumanize how people see prostitutes? Well, I think that an unachievable goal, as long as we're legitimizing prostitution, 
I think that as long you have to first of all frame prostitution in in the reality of of what it is before you're going to be able to talk accurately about the position of the people caught up within it. The frustrating thing for me is I find a lot of people, I would say almost all people understand the nature of prostitution on a sensory level and very few of them understand it on an intellectual level and they're just two different types of known and those two things very often don't join up. With International Women's Day coming up, there was, on the radio, there was research done around men's perception of women. Do men think that women are as good as they are at certain jobs? I was horrified when to hear all of the comments. There was this guy who was saying, oh, I love women. I think about them all the time and all that. But, you know, they're just not as good as us in power positions. Saying they're making, they make their decisions based on emotions, emotions and not yeah. logic. Yeah. And a man assumes that a decision based on logic is better. Yeah. Sometimes you want, in your head, you want to scream when you hear men's opinions of women. No hope I have sometimes that we're ever going to get equality or understanding of the realisation that we are all equal. Although I do realise change can happen and it'll be slow, there are times when you want to scream from the rooftops, feel so frustrated. Um, I read recently that you won a case, a defamation case, and um, I just wondered, would you explain to the listeners what that was about? The, the defamation case was the culmination of eight years of harassment, basically spearheaded by one individual, but picked up and ran with by many, many others. And it had got to the point when I, I made my second late, late appearance a couple of years back. It was in the spring of 2018. And a whole load of defamation was hurled up onto the Late Late Show hashtag that same night that I just decided I'd had enough. You know, I, I had to get legal on it. I would have done that years prior had I had the means. I didn't back then. When all that started in the spring of 2012, I didn't have the means to take a defamation case. I didn't know the first thing about defamation law. I think if people knew everything that went into that and what I was put through, they'd be really astonished because it involved four different visits to different legal teams over the years before I finally found one that felt that they could take it on outside of the high court because I certainly didn't have a hundred grand to go to the high court. I went to the local police station a couple of times. I spoke to a local area public representative, local politician. I was just bounced from Billy to Jack for years. The police told me it was a civil case. The solicitors told me they couldn't deal with it outside the high court. The politician told me he was very sorry for me, but there was nothing he could do as long as this woman was breaking no laws. What was she doing? Um, insisting on a near de- daily basis all over social media that I was a fake, a fraud, a fantasist, that I'd never been on the game in my life, that I was making it all up for money. Now, if this had been a relentless barrage of tweets, that would have been bad enough. But in addition to that, she was contacting the publisher of my book here in Ireland and elsewhere abroad, because it's been translated now several times. She contacted my publishers in in New York and elsewhere. She contacted the editors in every news outlet I ever wrote for across the United States, uh, the United Kingdom and Ireland. And um, yeah, it was relentless. It was absolutely relentless. And I can't tell you what it feels like to have somebody so fixed on on watching you, everything you do. Um, Like I would write an article for 
publication that I would have thought should have been obscure to her. And she would have contacted the editor within 12 hours. It was harassment as, as much as it was defamation. But it was the defamation that I was able to get legal about. And what was the outcome of the case? What were the restrictions placed on her now as a result? It's been settled legally. Because of multiple additional affidavits that she submitted, the case dragged on over the course of uh, 19 months in total. I've got a legal injunction from her repeating those lies about me again. She can't repeat that without going to prison. But it's been absolutely hellish. And I'll tell you what was really strange about it as well. And it really like genuinely surprised me was the amount of people, you know, like local area councillors in Britain, authors, journalists, people from at home and abroad. They had public profiles and yet they were willing to retweet and comment upon as if there was some substance to her allegations. And that went on for years. So I can't tell you what it's like to have your your character picked apart in the public arena like that. Financially, how did she manage to fight it? Yeah. Well, she represented herself. Did you know um, this woman prior to this at all? I didn't know her from a hole in the wall, and I still don't. And do you have any idea, after going through all of that, what her problem was? I think her problems would be better dealt with in a psychiatric setting. She did, uh, as an aside, produce a letter of appeal from her psychiatrist in her evidence bundle. So, like, all joking aside, that was, that was her, her defence. It was a hugely abusive aspect of what it's meant to, to campaign publicly. You are some woman for one woman, I can tell you that. I think we're going to wrap up now, Rachel. I think we have enough evidence on you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much, Rachel Moran. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. When you consider everything you've been through on your own, like it's absolutely incredible that you're so well put together, so articulate, highly intelligent, a fantastic campaigner and activist. Like, I hope you know how amazing you are because I'm just blown away. Thanks a million, Rachel. Uh, thanks, girls. I Bye. hope to see you soon. You can follow Rachel on Twitter at Rachel R. Moran, and her book is available at Gill Books Bookstore and all booksellers nationwide. It's also available in ebook on Amazon and iTunes. Thank you for listening. Hopefully, some of the information we've shared will resonate with you and bring you to a place where you can have compassion for yourself. Please know that no matter how you feel or how you respond to the abuse, it was normal. We're hopeful and optimistic that those in a position of power to bring about change will be moved into action so we can finally eradicate childhood sexual abuse. So please spread the word and share the information. The decision to heal from childhood sexual abuse places you and the most important journey of your life. You're in charge of this journey. Only you know what works for you and what doesn't. It takes as long as it takes because there's no rush in it and there's no fake in it. You have to feel it. And just as the ripple of pain that you're in goes out and impacts all of those around you, so does the healing. And the more you heal, the more everyone around you benefits from your healing. You've been listening to the Kavna Sisters podcast. You can contact us through Facebook, Twitter and Instagram or email the Kavna Sisters at gmail.com. <laughs>